In the year 1520, a German priest and theology professor named Martin Luther, he published a series of three treatises. Three treatises that encapsulated the key ideas he wished to promote. Ideas that would go on to really shake the foundations of European religious and political life. Those treatises and their author, Martin Luther, forever changed the culture and institutions of the modern world. They were, in a word, revolutionary. But the ideas which they conveyed, the ideas at the heart of Luther's Reformation, weren't novel or unique to him. Luther didn't come up with them on his own. In his mind, he was simply communicating the teaching of the Bible and taking seriously the, the revolutionary implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take, for instance, his third treatise that he published, which he titled, The Freedom of a Christian. He begins that treatise by articulating two simple theses, two propositions, he calls them, about the freedom and bondage of the Christian spirit. First, he says, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And second, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. At face value, Luther admits that these two propositions seem to just flatly contradict one another. How can a Christian be both a, a free Lord and a servant of all? How does that make any sense? But then, Luther goes on to explain that if you understand what the gospel is saying, if you understand the promise that the New Testament makes, that every person who is united to Jesus by faith comes to share in everything that belongs to him, if you really understand that, then you'll realize that Christians, just like Jesus, Christians have complete and entire freedom. They don't lack anything. They don't need to fear anything. And because of that, Christians can do the seemingly impossible. They can forget about their own needs. They can set aside their own preferences and they can devote their lives in service to others, exactly like Jesus did. That, Luther says, is the freedom of a Christian. And that has revolutionary consequences if you ever read this little treatise by Luther, you'll notice that he quotes a lot of scriptures, especially from the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul was his main inspiration. But if you read the second chapter of 1 Peter, you may notice that the Apostle Peter says some very similar things. Peter also talks about Christian freedom. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And yet, as you can see just from that one verse, Peter doesn't just talk about being free, but also about being a servant. In fact, he says that Christians ought to honor and serve not only God and not only the governing authorities, but everyone. Be subject, he says, to every human creature, honor everyone. If you understand the implications of what he's saying, and if you understand especially the culture 
to, to which he's saying it, you'll realize that these aren't just nice, cliche, religious sentiments. What Peter is saying is revolutionary. At least that's my claim. And in this session, I'll try to unpack that claim by looking a bit deeper at how Peter talks about the gospel in chapter 2 of his letter, and then how he develops some of its rather revolutionary implications. First, look at what he says about the gospel. Uh, now, Peter doesn't actually use the word gospel anywhere in the second chapter of his letter, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't talk about it. On the contrary, one of his main goals is to remind his readers of the good news of what God has done for them and how that has redefined, really redefined the story of their lives. In chapter 2, he, he does this in two ways. First, he draws on the language that God used when he spoke to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 19, right after they'd left Egypt and, and as they came to the Mount of Sinai. On that occasion, God had told Israel that he had chosen them to be his treasured possession, was the word he used, his treasured possession among the nations and that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, Peter uses that exact same language and applies it to these early Christians. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And how? How are these early Christians, this, this mixture of both Jews and non-Jews spread across these Roman provinces, how are they now God's royal priesthood and holy nation? Well, again, Peter draws on language from the Old Testament, this time from the book of Hosea, and says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, what was true of you, what was true of the story of your lives, all of that has changed. And that's good news. God has shown you mercy. God has made you a people. That's one of the ways that Peter reminds them of the gospel. The other comes several verses before that when he once again, he draws on some biblical imagery, this time coming from the Psalms and the book of Isaiah, sort of combining them. And, and all this imagery is about this language of being a rock and a cornerstone. Now, this imagery, it doesn't really connect quite so easily with modern readers. Most of us don't have a lot of experience constructing walls or building with stone. But it did make sense to Peter's audience. They knew all about buildings built with stone, and they knew, they knew just how important it was for builders to select the right cornerstone, that, that stone that's a, a cut at perfect 90-degree angles, that stone that will ensure that the building looks good and that it will last. And what's interesting about the way Peter uses this language is that he actually applies it both to Christ and to Christians. First, he mentions Christ, the living stone, he calls him, who was rejected by men, but chosen and honored by God. And then he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, 
why, you might ask, does that matter? Well, because essentially what Peter is suggesting is that God has joined Christians. He has joined them to Christ so closely that, as Luther said, everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to them, that his story is now their story, which means, and this is important, which means that their experience of honor and dishonor will be the same as his. Jesus was honored by God. He was chosen by God as the perfect cornerstone. He was precious to God, Peter says, but he wasn't honored by men. Jesus was rejected. He was dishonored. He was treated with contempt, and yet he was unaffected by it. Not because he didn't care, but because he knew that God took delight in him. He knew that God would lavish him with honor. And in the same way, Peter suggests that Christians are likewise, that they're honored by God. So the honor, he says, is for you who believe. But Peter also suggests that Christians won't necessarily be honored by their neighbors. In fact, in verse 12, he tells them to expect other people to disrespect them to treat them with contempt and call them evildoers. Uh, The good news to all of these ancient Christians is that no matter what social class they may belong to, no matter what gender or ethnicity they may have, no matter what respect or disrespect they may experience from others, the good news is that just like Christ, they can be assured that they are of infinite worth. They are God's people. They are precious to him. And they will, like Christ, they will one day be lavished with honor. That is the gospel, the good news that Peter wants his readers to understand. And it has some pretty revolutionary implications. Now, to understand just how revolutionary Peter's words might have been, you you have to keep in mind the culture to which these Roman Christians belonged. They lived in a society that was obsessed with honor. The famous Roman senator, Cicero, he once observed this obsession with honor and how you could see it even in the behavior of little boys. Cicero said, with what earnestness they pursue their rivalries, what exaltation they feel when they win and what shame when they are beaten, how they dislike reproach, how they yearn for praise, what labors will they not undertake to stand first among their peers? Another famous Roman, the philosopher Seneca, once remarked that you could find this obsession with honor even amongst slaves. Even those who seemed to possess the lowest status in society, they still longed for and they still fought for respect, and they hated to be treated with contempt. You will find, Seneca says, slaves who prefer to be whipped than slapped, and who believe death and beatings more tolerable than scornful words. That was the world to which Peter wrote when he wrote this letter. It was a world of rivalry, a world of competition, a world obsessed with honor and dignity and respect and status. So just imagine how they felt when they read Peter's words in verse 13. Be subject 
to every human creature. Now, this verse is often translated as be subject to every human institution. And it's true that the Greek word katesis, it's true that that word can refer to things that humans create, like institutions. But the most natural meaning of the word is just creature. And on this occasion, Peter doesn't seem to be referring so much to human laws or institutions as to persons, to actual human creatures, such as the emperor or governors or whoever else might have some claim of authority over you. In verse 18, for for instance, Peter applies this same logic specifically to the masters of household servants. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What's more, Peter doesn't just talk about subjecting yourself to people who have some kind of authority over you. He also talks about giving honor to others, regardless of their status. Honor everyone, he says in verse 17. That's that's a pretty all-encompassing mandate. Give honor, treat with honor, not just those you think who deserve it, not just those who honor you in return, not even only to those who are just. Honor everyone. Now, imagine how those early Christians might have responded when they first heard those words. Just think about the objections that might have come to their minds. Hold on. What do you mean, honor everyone? I've had to work hard for the position I have. It's taken me years to earn respect. Why should I submit myself to those who don't deserve it? Why should I honor those who don't honor me? You know, it's one thing to tell some household servant to honor everyone. Although, if Seneca's right, even they would have felt resentful. But can you imagine how some wealthy Roman aristocrat might have responded? Excuse me? You want me to serve and honor her? But Peter doesn't back down. Remember, he's already told them. He's already told them, and he's told us, that the worlds to which we belong, they're not really our home. He's already told us that we're strangers in this world and that our calling is to bear witness to Christ by living distinctively. And now he's just explaining what that actually looks like in practice and why it might seem so strange to other people. Jesus didn't just serve or honor those that deserved it or those who treated him well. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now pay attention to that last line. Why was Jesus able to act the way he did? So unbothered by the disrespect and contempt that others showed him? Because, Peter says, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Because he knew that God took delight in him. He knew that God honored him. He knew that God would honor and exalt him in the future. Jesus knew all that. So in a world, a world of slander and disrespect and contempt, he didn't respond in kind. In a world of endless competition, Jesus never tried to compete. And you, Peter is saying, 
you Christians, you who are now God's chosen people, you who are now precious and living stones, you are now free to do the same. Because that's what true freedom is. A Christian, as Luther said, a Christian is a free Lord of all, subject to none. And because of that, a Christian can also be a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That may make no sense in the logic of the marketplace. That may seem absurd to a world obsessed with recognition and status and achievement. But Peter's saying, if you're a Christian, that's your vocation. You are meant to be different and strange. You're meant to stand out. You, Peter says, are a free people who share the story of Christ. So go live like it. Honor everyone and leave the judgment to God. <laughs>